Welcome to the Scholar's Attic, an audio archive of our tour through world history, specifically the modern age, from the French Revolution to current events of 2021. Welcome to the Attic. What follows is the second half of our class from February 12th, 2021. There is a little bit of spotty editing going on here. Uh, several interruptions happened during class, some technology glitches. My Zoom students uh, were accidentally dropped at one point and I had to stop what I was doing to correct the situation. So I apologize if the recording feels a little bit jumpy, uh, if the editing is not as smooth as it usually is, but I think you get the general idea uh, of the conversation as it follows. This section focusing on the Beer Hall Putsch and Mussolini with a quick sidebar into India and the salt marches, very generalized. This is something that was discussed earlier in the school year. Uh, so our focus here is mostly on Italy and Germany. So let's listen in. Okay, so meanwhile, back on the farm, the German farm, um, 1923 rolls around and we have the Beer Hall Putsch. Now a Putsch um, is a German word that means a secret plan to suddenly overthrow the government. Now, like as happens in a lot of different languages, you will have these words that are very specific in meaning. Um, and this is one of them because if we didn't use the German word for this, then we would call this the beer hall coup, or the, the beer hall attempt to throw overthrow the government. Like it would be like this very long, kind of name for it, but putsch just, it makes more sense. Just that one word, very specific definition. Uh, the Germans have a lot of these very specific words in their, their language. The, the other thing that tells you a lot about the, the Teutonic psyche of the German people is that they have a specific word, schadenfreude, which means to take delight in the suffering of others. Leave it to the Germans, right? Um, and I know a lot of German people and they're amazing and I love them to pieces, but it always amazes me once you start looking at what different cultures and languages deem to be important vocabulary words in their language that they would actually come up with a word that means specifically to take delight in the suffering of others. It's sort of like the Eskimos, they have over a hundred words for different kinds of snow, but no one word that just means snow. Down here, we just need the one word, snow, because if it's white and it's falling from the sky or it's on the ground, whatever, it's snow. But if you live in an Eskimo culture, then it makes a big difference on whether or not it's melting snow, refrozen snow, new snow, snow falling down from the sky, snow that's been pushed off to the side, snow that you put into a little box and make your igloos out of it. I, I, it, it makes a difference, right? So why have one blanket category for all of that and not have specific terminology that you actually need? So 
I find it interesting that German seems to think that it has a need for some of these very specific words that have to do with violence or overthrowing the government in this case. Anyway, the Beer Hall Putsch was Hitler's failed attempt to overthrow the Weimar Republic, the, the current, what was then the current government of Germany, and establish a national, this is where we get the term Nazi, it's short for national, national, if you pronounce it with a German accent, government in its place. By 1923, the Nazi party already had over 35,000 members, and this included 600 stormtroopers, which is the beginning of the SS, the, um, the, the, the military elite force of the Nazi party. Now, stormtroopers should ring a bell. What does that make you think of? Star Wars. Okay, so one of the things that's um, maybe a little bit lost on more recent audiences is the fact that when the original Star Wars movie aired or, or hit theaters, I should say, in 1977, there were some, maybe not heavy, but some distinct World War II overtones that audiences of the time got clear and away. Because even the uniforms that uh, the, the people on the, the Death Star are wearing, especially the officers, like they weren't Nazi uniforms, but they were almost... Like there are several little things, there's the, the uniforms, there's the use of uh, the phrase stormtroopers that have these very clear World War II Nazi connotations, even though you never see a swastika anywhere in the movie. And so it was easy to identify who the bad guys were from the get-go, not because they were wearing swastikas or because, you know, Obi-Wan standing there going, look, bad guys, I see them coming. Like there's nothing that overt, but the audiences would have picked up on the clues and go, oh yeah, these are the guys we do not trust because we know what stormtroopers are and we know what Nazi uniforms look like. The reason it's called the Beer Hall Putsch is because it happened in a beer hall. There were leading government officials who were in this beer hall and the Nazis swept in and they were going to uh, overtake the government by holding these guys hostage. And eventually um, they were able to negotiate things where Hitler stepped down and was arrested, which he said later was a grave mistake. He should have held his ground. Um, he ended up in jail um, for a time after this. But in retrospect, he called it a success, even though it did not pan out the way he had originally planned it. He called it a success because number one, it gave him an out on who to blame, the financial crisis of the time and the government's role in that. So it gave him easy scapegoats to blame and in the small spurt of violence that went down as a result of this, um, a few people uh, did die in a shootout and it gave the Nazis their first martyrs for the cause that they could rally around. So think of like last year in American history um, when we were talking about the French and Indian Wars, y'all remember the War of Jenkins' Ear? 
the guy had his ear locked off in some skirmish, and so you had guys going to war with pictures of an ear on it, and remember Jenkins' ear, and the guy was actually like going, you know, around the government with his ear pickled in a jar and showing it off to people, and like, look what they did to me. It, it became sort of like that, um, but with more sinister undertones. Um, because they had martyrs, they could say, you know, remember, you know, that their version of saying, remember the Alamo, remember Jenkins' ear, remember, and, you know, whoever it was. And, and so that was the beginning of the Nazi propaganda machine. You don't have to write this down. This guy was the prime minister at the time in 1938 in England. He, he was the British prime minister, Neville Chamberlain who, bless his heart, I don't think he was a bad man. I think he did a lot of good things while he was in office, but the one thing that he is remembered for is the fact that he went into peace negotiations with Hitler and came away with the impression that he had secured peace for our time. And, and he actually got off the plane from Germany waving the piece of paper that Hitler had signed um, saying that, you know, you know, well, and you see the quote here, my good friends, this is the second time in our history that there has come back from Germany to Downing Street, peace with honor. I believe it is peace in our time. In other words, he was saying there is no second part to the war. It's never going to happen. It's done. The Great War did what it was supposed to do. The war is, in fact, over. We can go about living our lives out in peace. And, of course, it was the following year that Hitler starts rolling tanks through Poland. And everyone realized that a lot of people, including the prime minister, had been duped. And then that's when people started this sort of groundswell chant of, we need Winston. Where is Winston Churchill? England needs Winston. Okay, so this is where we need to stop and have a little quick FII on what exactly is propaganda. Because propaganda takes all forms and it is not specific to the modern age, even though we have made a real art form out of it by this point. But as Miss Earle likes to point out in her classes, propaganda goes straight back to the ancient world. You can go back and look at the archaeological digs in places like Pompeii and Mohenjo-Daro and, you know, ancient Rome. And you find evidence of propaganda even back in those days. Now, Back then, they would have been laid out in mosaics or carved in stone. There would be statuary. Um, it, it always amazes me whenever I see it pop up on a website or in a book, the, the beautiful statuary uh, that we know that has been labeled as, as a representation of like Caligula or Nero, of just being these these beautiful chiseled men with a noble brow and a strong chin. And then you read the history of these guys and go, whoa, like I, I, I need to go take a shower after just reading the summary of these guys' lives because they were just so deplorable. But you look at the statuary and it's like, oh, the, these are 
men among gods. Like that they they've you know they've got the blessing of Zeus. Look at them. Uh, look at how they've been represented to the people. And the picture could not be further from the truth. So propaganda has existed from the very beginning. So basically, once man fell into sin, um, and we figured out that it could sometimes be profitable to lie to large numbers of people about something, we had the beginning of propaganda. So what we're looking at here is not the invention of propaganda, because it's not new to this. Remember, we even looked at this in the French Revolution um, with the, um, the painting, um, golly, I'm drawing a blank, and I teach the class, guy who got murdered in the math, bathtub, and about how that was mirror imaging some sacred art that everybody at the time would have known about. Is that Jean Paul Marat? Marat, thank you. Sorry. I'm in World War II brains. So my French Revolution brain has sort of like faded into the background. So yes, so we had the painting of the death of Jean-Paul Marat, and it's, it's painted to represent sacred art. That was propaganda. We talked about that back then. So what is propaganda? Well, there are four key elements of propaganda. Repetition, simplicity, imagery, and sentiment. So y'all know what repetition is. So when we talk about Islam and the uh, Shahada, Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet. Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet. And whenever you see like the angry chanting mobs and they're chanting something over and over again in Arabic, that's almost certainly what there is. Something is short, is to the point, and you just repeat it and repeat it and you can actually whip the crowd into a real frenzy by just chanting this one thing over and over and over and over. Repetition can be powerful. And repetition can take on all kinds of forms. It's not just crowds chanting something over and over. It can also be, you know, on Twitter, certain things getting tweeted over and over to where you don't even know where the thing origi originated from. Um, it's part of the echo chamber that is part of social media now where something happens and then for the next week, it's like the one meme pops up on all of your social media and it's just being repeated over and over and over. Repetition can really drill something into your head, even if you know at the outset that it is not true. Simplicity. The longer it is, the harder it is to remember. So if you keep it simple, then people are more likely to remember it and then repeat it. And that takes you to the repetition part. So what was the very simple, straightforward slogan of the Bolsheviks? Three words. Peace. Peace, bread, and land. So it was bread, land, and peace. I think it was in that order, but bread, land, and peace. So you can imagine people at some of these protests in Russia, you know, bread, land, peace, bread, land, peace, bread, land, peace. And it's, it's short. It says everything that they're concerned about, and it's easy to repeat ad nauseum. Imagery. What pictures are we putting with this? We've always been very visual creatures. That's why carving beautiful statues of Caligula and Nero worked back in the ancient world because you have something that you can visually fixate on. Um, you get into the modern era and we're talking more about posters, magazine covers, and then later on we get into political campaign commercials and things of that nature. And then sentiment. 
what is the core emotion that is going the the propaganda is going after so do you see why and i i know i only did about four or five of these with you but why i did the meme analysis with y'all back in first semester right because that's basically what i was asking you to lock in on what was the imagery what was the sentiment that was being invoked what does the the meme actually say what's the subtext and then also looking at why would this thing repeat itself through social media why do people keep clicking share on this because a lot of memes a lot of those one hit wonders with you know the the photos with the the snarky caption like why are they so wildly popular it's because we no longer have to wait around for the government to produce propaganda we will propaganda ourselves to death we've gotten to a point in our society where we create our own propaganda and then of course you get the law of unintended consequences wrapped up in that and it it can it really plays into cancel culture and shutting down um uh, businesses people careers etc so here is one poster from the, uh, you know, 1920s, 1930s, uh, German, a uh, German poster here. And um, I, I'm not going to try to pronounce it because I have no German language skills. But you should recognize the last word in this, at least. What is that last word in red on the poster? <laughs> well, it starts with a K. Hmm? Kinder. Kinder, which is the German word for kid. kid or child. Okay, so this is where we get our word kindergarten. It's actually a German word. It uh, started with the original Montessori schools back in the day, the Garden of Children. So it was a garden of children where children went to learn through play as they <coughs> waited for their chance to start big school. Um, and then the first word is mother, and then, um, Ms. Earl, you might want to Google this one to, to see if I'm, I'm completely on with this, but I believe this translates as mothers protect your children. Perhaps mothers fight for your children. Mothers fight for your children, maybe. Continuous reminders to drive it into the public consciousness. So this is what repetition does. Like you want to really hammer this home so that it is just carved in the gray matter of your audience. Why do we want the slogan to be simple? Well, if it's simple, then it's designed in such a way that it is quickly understood. So you don't want to be highbrow about this. You don't want it to be so nerdy that only a certain percentage of your people get this. You want this to be understood by anyone and everyone in your immediate audience even if their command of your language is not yet the best okay so even though i have basically zero german skills i can look at that and between that and the picture i can pretty much decode what that slogan says I, I believe it's either, uh, I, I think Rhett might have uh, got the second word right. I believe it's mothers fight for your children. Yeah, Something along those right. lines. And then the imagery, it's not just that you're like sticking a photo up there. Any photo will do. But what you want 
is an appeal to the ultimate vision of that slogan and, um, and to put it out there in a way that it is either shocking, like it shocks the audience to their senses, or it is somehow appealing to your audience. So if the slogan is mothers fight for your children, I mean, the mother in that picture looks pretty fierce. I do not want to be crossing that mad mama coming at me. And then you see these precious children, including the little one that she's holding in her arms, and she looks like she's ready to go to war against anyone who threatens her children, which is the most primal instinct out there. It is protecting the family, protecting the children, protecting the defenseless. Yes? Um, the German word for fight is Kampf. K-A-M-P-F. Oh, so like like mind comp. Oh, so maybe that's maybe that's a K then. Okay, so that would make sense. It's that stylized writing. Yeah, it that's like an R. So it, it does. It does. So mother comp for a kinder. And yes, as in mind comp, which is the title of Hitler's autobiography, which means my fight or my struggle. So that makes sense. Okay, so. So we've got this imagery of a mother ready to do battle to protect her children. And then the sentiment, the message must contain as little detail as possible and appeal, appeal instead to strong emotion, nostalgia, or some other sentiment. Um, nostalgia, mother love, love of country, those sorts of things like you want to go for the brainstem here when it comes to the emotional appeal so when you start picking apart the kind of things that pop up in your social media you can tell and i think you could tell even before i did my meme analysis stuff with y'all first semester but i i think all of y'all are savvy enough where you can pick out pretty easily like these are the ones who are putting out thoughtful questions for consideration versus these are just trying to get your temper up or these are just trying to make you nostalgic or, or supposed to give you like the warm fuzzies about something. So the more to the brainstem it is, the more you get that knee-jerk response of, well, I don't want to go to war. I'm a pacifist, but I'm going to defend my children. So it's like, oh, well, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure. Because, see, there were a lot of Germans at the time that as the Nazis gained momentum, they were not comfortable with what they were seeing and with what they were hearing. But there was that hesitation because the appeal was, well, we're here to protect family. We're here to protect the fatherland. We are Germans. This is what we do. We protect our own. And, and it appealed to such a DNA level to the German populace that a lot of Germans did not speak up when they should have. And then others found interesting ways of speaking up and standing up, even when nobody else was. Now, um, this is why I'm glad I spent time talking to you guys about the salt taxes <laughs> back before Christmas because it is while all of this is heating up in Germany that India is really beginning to chafe beneath the goad of British imperialism 
And so uh, there's a lot of internal strife going on there. There's a lot of internal strife going on with many countries. The Great Depression has a lot to do with it. The communist uprisings, the, the, the gaining of communist sentiment in these countries. It's, it's almost like the revolutions of 1848 all over again, only they're not these carefully synchronized uprisings all happening at the same time. They're more organic, to use an overworked phrase. Uh, from nowadays, um, but th there's all of this chafing that's happening in these different countries. And in India, this shows with their effort to throw off the British rule, uh, Mahatma Gandhi um, uh, demonstrates his ideas of civil disobedience during the salt marches. This is when India stages these large-scale protests against the highly unfair salt tax that we talked about. Uh, before and uh, in the 1940s this did lead eventually to India winning her independence um, back from Great Britain. So I will not dive into detail on this one here because we spent uh, a good bit of time on it before but this is where that hits the fan in India. This is just sort of a visual here on the timeline for Indian independence. So the thing to remember here is that while India is struggling for her independence, other colonial holdings in Africa are doing the same thing. So we get a lot of friction um, in these long-held colonies. This adds strain to the superpowers who are already it's sort of their knees are buckling from the Great Depression. Fascism and the totalitarian state is gaining momentum in places like Russia, Germany, and Italy. There's just a lot of unrest. So again, that goes back to Cameron's question about, well, if Germany had been able to magically repay everything promptly, would that have avoided the war? No, probably not, because all of this is seething in the background. It might have played out at a different timeline. The battle lines might have been drawn differently, but war was still on the horizon, even if Germany had been able to pony up the money. And notice here with the timeline uh, in India, we have... Um, you know, the, 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 the different benchmarks there, the different uh, points in the timeline are there, but they don't win their independence until 1947. So it's after World War II is over and that starts to die down that India finally is able to regain her independence. This you do not have to copy down. This is just the reminder here of what's going on in the Pacific. Now, Japan, after hundreds, literally hundreds of years of isolationism, uh, they begin to emerge into the modern public eye in the late 1800s, but they're still hanging back. Again, if you remember, your, if World War I was a bar fight, Japan was over the corner and just sort of waving and just, hey, thumbs up, I support you, but not doing anything. That Japan stayed in the corner the whole time, but it's at this point that Japan comes out of the woodwork and starts hitting people where it hurts 
and it's again it's maybe not a complete surprise because there was a lot of friction between like Japan and the United States leading up to the Pearl Harbor bombing but for most of the world this was completely out of the blue um, the kamikaze uh, pilots of course these are the suicide pilots that went into battle um, intending to die you know once you use up your bullets you fly your plane into the enemy aircraft or the enemy ship because the idea it, it's it's a jihad mindset uh, to take out the enemy as you you know as you crash and burn you take your enemy with you uh, the word kamikaze means divine wind and refers to a typhoon that swept away Mongol invaders from the Japanese coast around 1286 AD. And there's a great story behind that, which I think, Ms. Earl, don't you talk about that in Christendom uh, when, when you uh, focus on Asia? Yeah, yeah, because that, that's, that's almost a battle of thermoply type story, almost. Yeah, yeah. it's really neat. <laughs> okay, this is an old homework that this is this is not for you. But I did leave it in here because uh just one of the many faces of people who took a stand in Germany. Okay, so it really takes strength of character and courage to stand up against your own government when you have somebody like Hitler who has floated to the top and has become the head of your government. And one of the things that's so interesting when you look at the resistance movement in Germany is how many of these resistance groups were headed up by high school teenagers. Food for thought. All right, so Hitler and Japan are not, you know, Germany and Japan are not the only two players. There's also Italy. We have the Axis powers in this war. Germany, Italy, Japan. The totalitarian state, simply put, is a nation in which the government has control over all aspects of life. Russia was the leading example of this um, following the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, you know, communism takes root and, uh, root, and then Lenin and then later Stalin uh, start making decisions that affect every man, woman, and child in their nation to the point that by the time we get to the 1960s this is in a later powerpoint you've got an official review board that would look at the current fashions in women's clothing that's being promoted in magazines around the world and they would determine which of those fashions they would allow into their country about whether or not those fashions would even be an option for women in Soviet stores. Um, and so there's a, a couple of really interesting uh, photographs of this review board, which was all men except for one woman. And they're basically having a private, like, modeling show where ladies are presenting the latest women's fashion and they're deciding yay or nay. Because if you control the publishing, you control the magazines, you control what's sold in the stores, then it was possible for a long time in communist countries for, for people to not even know 
what was available or what advancements had happened in other parts of the world. So the totalitarian state, and then we, we get different variations of this in each of the totalitarian states of the time. Fascism is what we get in Italy. This is an ideology that exalts the nation above the individual and calls for, demands a dictator, um, a, a strong-willed leader. So in Germany, we get Adolf Hitler, and in Italy, we get Benito Mussolini. So that is Benito Mussolini there on the right. Um, interesting fellow. I will have you looking some stuff up on him later. Um, but for right now, I'm going to continue with our flyover of the information. Yes? The tapestry behind him, that's Roman Empire, isn't it? Yes. Um, Mussolini's idea. Okay, so Japan had imperialist notions to conquer China and a lot of Asia. Uh, so they were out to secure colonial holdings from other nations and acquire it for themselves. Hitler was doing a lot of the same thing for um, the inner Europe, like the core uh, region of Europe, and Mussolini wanted to go around the edges of the Mediterranean Sea because he wanted to rebuild the Roman Empire. That, that, was, his, that was his plan. So yes, nice catch. That is classic Roman Empire, Arx omnium nationum. Center of all nations. I think that's the, the slogan, for lack of a better term, of the, the Roman Legion, I believe. Yeah. Yes. One quick comment that today in the U.S. we're talking about the um, minimization of who can has who has control over right. the information information mm -hmm. control. We went from uh, about fifty companies in the U.S who owned all of the media in 1983. 50 companies, we're down now to six companies who own everything, all the media throughout the country, just six. From 50 media down companies to in 1983 to, to six, six in 2021. So that's yep. Disney, CBS. That's right, GE, GE. News Corp, Disney, Viacom, Time Warner, CBS. Everything is done by those things. Everybody is at, and when you start digging, you realize how many of those companies have interesting, like, family members cross-pollinating all, like, the, the CEO of one is married to the daughter of a CEO from another, like, that kind of intermarriage. It's like a new royalty, you know, the, the joining of nations and... Um, you know, have to keep it within the bloodlines, the family tree, because we have to keep the power consolidated among these peoples. And Amazon is now the biggest publisher in the country. Mm -hmm. So all the smaller publishing companies have all had, had to, you know, bow and, mm -hmm. you know, face annihilation or, or just be satisfied with a lot less income. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, there's always um, talk in the publishing world about there's like the big five or the big six, like the big publishing companies. You have like HarperCollins and Macmillan and then Random House. Like that, there were like six of these. And now, the, like the whole publishing formula of like how how to publish books, how to get, you know, your magazine started, all of that. Like those rules have been completely just splattered. All right, all right. Fascism defined by a fascist. Here's a nice little Benito Mussolini quote for you. Fascism is totalitarianism totalitarian, so complete control, and the fascist state, the synthesis and unity of all values, interprets, develops, and gives strength to the whole life of the people. In other words, ultimate concern, the core religion, if you will, of the people should be the health of the nation. You are a bee in the beehive and your job is to serve the queen. That is why you exist. That is where you get your strength. That is where you get your identity. That is where you get your moral values. It comes from the government. And then this is where you start to see why in a nation like China that values that totalitarian state, why the Christian church comes under fire and persecution so much over there because Christianity is about the individual and about the redemption of the individual and knowing your creator face-to-face -face and knowing who your value is in Christ. And that goes against the grain of a nation that says, you are the bee, I'm the queen, you serve me. Because then you get into render unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto God's what is God's. But what happens when your government thinks it's God? Conflict of interest. Pretty big one at that. Which is why we're getting into the, all the, is it constitutional about, you know, is it really constitutional to have the right to bear arms? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes, I think everybody here would agree, yes, that it is a God-given right to defend yourself. But if it is a government-given right, then that can be taken away very easily. And there, we've already got plenty of people out there with, you know, chisels and knives trying to puncture holes in that one right alone. Okay. Fascism on the rise. Benito Mussolini took advantage of political stalemates. Uh, used violence, deliberately created disorder, used it to gain control, and the result, the iron deuce sometimes referred to as Il Duce, the leader, became dictator of Italy in 1922. So again, that skews the American notions of the World War II timeline. Because we think, oh, World War II, 1941. No, that was the beginning point for America. It starts in most of Europe 
1939, Hitler invades Poland. It starts in the Pacific in 1937 when uh, Japan invades China. It starts in Italy in 1922 when Benito Mussolini seizes power. Um, and notice that this is basically the same pattern that we have been looking at since we studied the French Revolution. Remember our nine stages of a revolution. Um, this, this happened with Napoleon, happens with Lenin, it happens with Mussolini, it happens with Hitler. There's unrest and disorder in their own countries, there's chaos, there's a political stalemate in the government, and they step in as the one strong-willed leader that is able to bring things into focus, to exert their will over um, a very emotional, impulsive uh, rabble, essentially, and they come away the clear-and-away leader. Interestingly enough, the uh, phrase Il Deuce, the nickname for Mussolini, and uh, Der Führer, which was the name for Hitler, they both mean the same thing in their respective languages. The leader. That's what it means. Führer, the leader. Il Deuce, the leader. And that, that was... That's just, that's where their identity centered. It's like, I am the leader. I am the final voice in the nation and in your life. Yes? Uh, what were Mussolini's, and to an extent, uh, Hitler's views on the church? It was the um, kiss babies on Sundays and do what you liked the rest of the week. It, it's, with Hitler especially, the Catholic church was a tool um, that allowed him to present a more presentable face to the public. Um, but um, there was also quiet instruction being given out to the church, especially within Germany. I haven't looked as deeply into this in, in regards to uh, Mussolini and the church in Italy, but in Germany, um, it was made very clear what preachers were and were not supposed to preach about, which is why the likes of Dietrich Bonhoeffer ended up on the wrong side of uh, the, the Nazi state. Um, because once you start preaching the unadulterated truth in the middle of a fascist state, um, that makes you public enemy number one. That wraps it up for this episode. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.